ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Outside the box with Jeff Conine. We had a week hiatus because I'm excited to talk to you about it. You had your pretty much kicking off the season, workouts, tryouts, everything for FIU. And it was fun, right? I mean, you're back on the field. I'm excited to talk about that. So we're going to get a little bit of info on the FIU program without tipping your, your hand too much. But a lot to be excited about over there as we get closer and closer to the season starting. Of course, I'm RM Layton. He is Jeff Conine. And Tell me about your first week as a coach. Now, I know you've done a little bit of coaching here and there, but this is your first week of like really being a coach. Yes, it is. I mean, uh, you know, I did some instructing with the Marlins when I worked for the team from uh, 2009 to 2017. I was in, you know, in uniform during batting practice uh, at home games. I was in uniform instructing during um spring training, but this is the first time, like I'm in charge, you know, I'm in charge of the hitters and I'm uh, actually, you know, uh, the top dog, so to speak, uh, as far as hitting is concerned. And uh, when I took this job in the early parts of June, I couldn't wait until last Tuesday, you know, because the whole summer was all recruiting. I'm going out trying to uh, recruit these kids that are, you know, 25 grads, 24 grads, 23 grads, and trying to project what they're going to be by the time they get to us at FIU or uh, in the division one college ranks, it's a tough gig. And, um, and you can't really talk to them. You know, you can, you evaluate, you write things down, you uh, make notes, you do all these things, but you can't really talk to the kids themselves unless they call you up to a certain date and blah, 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 a lot of NCAA rules. But Tuesday was the day of the bell rang for me that I got to go onto the field and actually uh, start coaching these kids uh, in real life. And it was, it was a great day. It was a great week. Um, a lot of energy, obviously. All the kids were excited to go. Um, you know, unfortunately, we've had a little uh, COVID bump in the road, uh, so to speak, um, both myself and the team. Um, so this uh, first three days of this week's practices were canceled because of uh, several COVID cases. But um, hey, we'll get past it right now. It's good that it happens right now. We can get it out of the way and uh, get ready for the season. Yeah, exactly. Assuming everybody's okay and, and everybody's families are okay, it's almost better to get it out of the way now uh, and, and just, you know, kind of sort that out before the season starts. But uh, for you, you're feeling fine, right? You, you just can't, you can't smell that much? I can't smell anything, Arm. Not that much. <laughs> I can't smell a thing. Nothing. <laughs> no smelling. Well, I know you're a guy that likes to cook, so hopefully uh, you can get that back sometime soon. But you could taste a little taste, bit, though. I still got taste for the most part. It's okay. Eated a little bit, but man, if I lose that, I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be really pissed. I, I, that's what I was telling you before we started recording. I was like, that's the only way I'm gonna start eating my greens is if I can't taste. That's the only way I'm gonna go after crush it. Them, crush them while you can. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the the one thing with the first week though, there is you are still getting to know a lot of the players. I'm sure you've had plenty of time to to get to know them a little bit before you were on the field. But it seems like just things are different once you get on the field, right? People are uh, different on the field in terms of the players, in terms of the coaches. Everybody has almost like their alter ego a little bit of who they become when they're on the field. And you've talked about that in the past as to like how you were on the field versus how you were off the field and how it was business between the lines. How do you try to instill that into your players while also maintaining that you want them to have fun, right? Because it is more serious now. This isn't high school baseball. This is a major division one program uh, that has hopes to go all the way. Right. But you also have to remember, right. That they're, they're kids still and are young adults. And at the end of the day, we, we played the game to have fun. Is that a tough balance or a tough juggle uh, as a coach? Cause you want them to stay focused. You want them to stay on it, but you also want to keep it fun in, in loops. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really just learning all these guys' names and we didn't have a whole lot of time uh, prior to this week to be able to get together and, you know, we basically had a team meeting that was kind of our kickoff meeting for the year. And, 
Um, you know, I'm still kind of asking people, oh, who's that? You know, who's that? Because I just don't know all the names yet. Um, but I'm learning quickly and I'm learning about these guys quickly. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a fine balance between, you know, this is college and this could be or should be the best three or four years of their life as far as getting away from home and getting to be part of a team, a division one team that has a, a credible amount of talent that has a possibility to win a conference and go to the NCAA regionals and, and championships. So um, there's one thing that I've learned so far uh, very early is that you have to assume that they know nothing. Yeah. Like I'm going back to the basic basics with these guys, because in this showcase kind of world that we live in now, not many guys have been taught how to play the game of baseball. Yes, they're supremely talented. Yes, they run fast. Yes, they got tremendous power and they hit the ball very far. And yes, they got good arm speeds and velocities and all these tools that, you know, that we, tools that we talk about. But when you put all those things together and in the context of winning a baseball game, a lot of these kids don't really know that much. Uh, one 20 minute segment the other day was, was gone over just how to run the bases which we have talked about before in previous podcasts, how base running, even in the big leagues right now, is atrocious. Oh and my gosh. how guys don't know how to run the bases anymore. They don't know how to be aggressive. They don't know how to score a run. Um, so that was one of my first questions I posed to the team is, you know, one of the kids, I just said, when you step into that box, what's your goal? You know, what's your goal? Um, and he was like, well, I don't know, get on base. I'm like, no, your goal is to score a run. You gotta, you're trying to help the team win. you got to touch home plate. You got to come all the way around and touch home plate. So when you get to first base, what's your goal? My goal is to touch home plate, not to get to second base, not to get to third base. I want to touch home plate. So trying to instill into their minds that the defense is the ones that have to stop them from running, not, hey, I just want to get to second base and then stop. And then I want to get to third base and then stop. So all these things, uh, it's been interesting. And, you know, you get a lot of curious faces looking at you like, yeah, this is new information for me. I need it and I want it, which you know, for a coach that's trying to teach them the game of baseball, um, this is going to be fun. Oh, absolutely. And what I like about that angle to it is that I think there's a little bit of in baseball, you get on base and you're like, my job's done, right? My job's done because somebody's either going to hit me in or they're not going to hit me in. And it is what it is. But you also can really help that situation by taking that extra base by uh, reading the dirt ball or by opportunistically stealing a bag. And somebody that comes to my mind, obviously I'm covering the Marlins more and watching the Marlins more. So uh, there's probably other examples of this, but Miguel Rojas, Miguel Rojas is a gamer of all gamers, right? And just a grinder who has hit his peak of his career at age 31 in the majors. He's really figured it out. And what I really like about Rojas is he's not the fleetest of foot. He's 32 years old at this point. He's, he's still, I would say is as athletic and you know nimble as he's ever been, but he was never really a burner 12 stolen bases this year, already the most of his career in only 119 games. And those are all opportunistic bags, seeing somebody that's slow to home plate a delayed steal, maybe, or reading one in the dirt or knowing the count, knowing a good pitch to steal on. Those are the things that he does. And I feel like that just changes everything. When you have a guy that's not a, a profound base dealer that's able to get into scoring position with less than two outs and all the little things that that does. Miguel Rojas is one of those guys that to me, like if I'm a coach, I'm pointing towards Rojas and I'm saying, look at what this dude does because I just love the way he plays the game. And I think there's a reason why he's still around, right? I mean, there's not that many guys that didn't have the profile glove first infielder. How many guys like that get an opportunity to play every day in the bigs and then work it out in the other ways with the bat. And I think it shows how many different ways you can, you can impact the game when it comes to these young kids too. everybody, you mentioned the showcase type of, uh, I guess, attitude and what's somewhat just ingrained into our heads as players that grew up in this Time frame, I would I would kind of put myself in that same pocket as them because I remember it was about the exit velos, it was about the pitching velocity, it was about all those things. You go out and pitch in a perfect game tournament, nobody cared how they did. You could go three innings and get shelled, but if you touched ninety on that radar gun, you're in good shape. And it's just the reality of it. Part of that is at the fault of the recruiters because that's what they're looking for, also. But the other part of it is is that players are chasing that. How much are you looking at as an evaluator and now as someone that's looking to bring players into your team? This is something that I think can be integrated into the big league level as well and a little bit more of a, a dramatic example, but 
how much are you looking at players that do all the little things that may not have those tools that you hope will develop into the tools? Or what about the guy that has all the tools, but doesn't really know how to play the game? Is it easier to teach the things that, you know, maybe you aren't able to teach and just hope they'll physically develop? Or is there an in-between there that you're looking for in a player? Well, obviously you, you can't teach tools. I mean, some guys, you either throw 95, you don't. Um, uh, if you're a 6'5 runner, you know, you can't teach a 7'0 runner to, to run 6'5. Uh, you can't teach a, a guy that has a 100 exit velo um, or a guy that has a 90 exit velo. You can't teach him. Well, you can improve on it, but he's really going to have it or not, you know, about the 100 mile an hour exit velo. So um, I think that, yes, those tools are essential, not essential. Those tools are important. And if I could get those guys and teach them the game of baseball, that's more easy to develop than getting a guy that doesn't have the tools, uh, really teach him the game of baseball, but it, it's like interchange. Like who does the, does the tool guy want to learn the game of baseball? Does yeah. he want to get in there and learn all the nuances and become that, that guy that knows how to run the bases, knows how to, uh, defend properly, knows when to, as an outfielder, run to throw to second base, when to try to throw a runner out, when to back up bases, all these things that, that we create that baseball IQ. Does he want to do that? And if he does, that's the kind of guy that I want. I can take tools and I can make him into a baseball player. But in general, when you're at a school like ours, FIU, you're not going to get those huge tool guys because all those huge, huge tool guys are going after by Vanderbilt and UF and Florida State and all the SEC and ACC schools. And, you know, everyone's enamored with those names and those schools. So what I've told our guys and what I look for myself is we're going to win a lot of baseball games by teaching the kids how to be baseball players. Uh, we're not going to overpower people with uh, huge bats that are going to hit 30 home runs a year. We're not going to be able to do that in our conference or with our team. So we're going to be able to develop these guys into baseball players. And thus, you know, we're going to, we're going to surprise a lot of people by the baseball IQ we develop in the fall and, and what we bring to the table in the spring. And you have a guy on your staff, uh, Derek Cartaya, who played for FIU, who I think is the epitome of that. I mean, he was a thorn in our side in high school and just not a big dude, scrappy as hell, did all the little things right. And uh, they won games, right? We would lose. Our loaded Pinecrest team would lose to that Somerset team that was just scrappy and did all the little things right all the time. And I think it shows you that you can win that way. And I think you look at Coastal Carolina a few years ago uh, in the College World Series. Yes, they had a lot of really good talent in there too, of course, but so does uh, any team that gets that far. And FIU will have a ton of talent too, but that's how you separate yourself. And it's always fun to hear how coaches try to, I guess, build that culture and build that sustainable winner. Um, because like Coastal showed, anybody can can get there uh, if, if you're able to build that culture from the ground up and, and get something going there. Last thing I wanted to ask you in that regard though, is working with the hitters. What's the one, is there one thing that stands out to you the most that hitters are lacking, whether it's approach, whether it's swing, whether it's, is it too early to answer that question? Um, it's a little early cause I haven't seen game action yet. Um, but from just talking with the guys, uh, a lot of it's approach, you know, they get up there and, and they have no plan. Um, I'm trying to institute, you know, certain, um, routines and batting practice to get them in their head that this is what I want to do with the ball early in my batting practice. I want to take it the other way. When you go to a major league spring training or a major league batting practice, you won't see any guy go. If he's a right-handed hitter, he wouldn't hit one ball to the left of second base during his first two rounds of batting practice. They all work the other way. They all work the other way. And there's a reason for that, you know, because as soon as you start flying open, thinking about a home run to left field, then you're kind of screwed on the outside part of the plate. So these guys want to be able to keep their hips and shoulders in to go the other way. And, you know, you might see a guy hit a bomb to left field uh, and nobody says anything behind the cage. But if you see a guy rip a line drive to right field, they're going, oh, good swing, good swing, good swing. Yeah. Because, you know, going to the opposite field is hard to do, but yep. there's a lot of hits to be made the opposite field, the opposite way. So trying to get these guys to think like that um, and try to think that routine will solve a lot of mechanical issues um, because, a bad thought process will create bad mechanics, which will create slumps. Well, so, it, you know, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic to, to get these guys and, and get them thinking the right way. 
and then have them establish their plan that they know is their plan and they know it works for them and they have confidence in it because once you've got that plan, you know, your, your mechanics will fall into place and you don't have to really think about much of anything when you get into the box. Well, for any of those guys that may make it to the show, uh, they'll thank you big time because I was at the game with my mom. We went to the subway series game one Marlins or Marlins Yankees Mets and at city field. And my mom, I guess she, she hadn't been to a game in a while, but also this was a game between two teams that have so many hitters with zero approach, or at least just not a very tangible approach. And my mom asked me, she goes, why are they playing all on one side of the infield? And cause like she's seen normal shifts, but she hasn't seen, you know, the Manny Machado in right field shift, which is what these two teams were deploying in this one. Cause you got Joey Gallo, you got Stanton, you got all of these guys that are just so pull happy, Javi Baez, you name it. And I looked at her and I was like, you know, this is what they do. They know that you're going to most likely pull it and that's where they play. And her response to that was like, why don't they just hit it the other way? Yeah. And of, of course that's like a easier said than done thing, but having that conversation with my mother, it almost makes you realize how far we've gone here. Like it, that's, it's a very valid question. How hard is it to just shoot the ball the other way? It could be 15 miles an hour off the bat. And just for somebody that didn't play baseball like that. My mom played softball, but you know, to, to come away with that, it's just, it's, it's just kind of funny. And that was uh, one thing that stood out to me in the subway series, but the one that I missed, unfortunately, because we went to a game where the Yankees put up one of the worst performances I've ever seen. Uh, and they got blown out. Uh, it was, it was pretty funny and pretty entertaining, but then two games later, you have the third game of the series Sunday night. It's Yankees Mets. You have a lot of drama from Saturday night. And I actually missed the drama until I watched the game Sunday. And I was like, what is this all about? Basically, quick rundown for those who might not know. Um, Francisco Lindor homered three times on Sunday. By the way, that was like a signature Mets moment. I thought that was a really big, big night for him. But when he was rounding second base, he made a gesture towards the Yankees in the field or whatever, kind of making that like whistling, the two fingers in his mouth whistling gesture, because I, I guess the Mets had accused the Yankees of knowing when Taiwan Walker, their starting pitcher, the Mets was, was tipping his pitches. And when he was tipping them, the Yankees dugout, this was the accusation was, was whistling to, to tip off the hitters. Obviously this would not involve any technology. This was just involving somebody looking at Taiwan Walker and then somebody whistling. The Yankees denied it for, for whatever that's worth. Um, and Stanton was like, no, Stanton ends up homering uh, after that Lindor gesture and Stanton rounding second base is like looking at Lindor, talking to him. Lindor says something back and Stanton stops his home run trot and is just standing out there at shortstop and jarring back and forth. Of course, Javi Baez runs right over to Lindor's support, which by the way, I would still take Stanton over both of those guys uh, at once together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 100%. But I kind of like Stanton standing up for himself there, like hit the bomb and then says something when he's jogging around, like I didn't need whistles that time. But what it did spur here, and this is what I'm getting at, is what is good or what is fair and what is not when it comes to sign stealing? As we know, the Astro situation, that doesn't play. You can't do that. You can't bring technology. And I think technology is a very fair line to draw. But clearly the Mets took exception to this and didn't like it if it was true, no technology was involved. Everything was done on the field of play. What are your thoughts on as to whether this is like, okay, where do we draw the line in just a sport that has no lines and a bunch of unwritten rules that continue to just be, you know, moved around? I mean, listen, this has been going on for 150 years of baseball. Um, there's a reason there are signs at, at third base. There's a reason they change them all the time is because they've got people that are looking to steal them, to, to know what's coming, to know what's going on with your game. They want to know the bunt sign. They want to know the seal sign. They want to know the hit and run. They want to know all these signs that they want to know at second base, if they can pick up the catcher and what he's throwing so they can somehow relay it to the hitter. Uh, if you, if I turn my head to the right, you know, that means it's going to fastball. If I look back to the second baseman, that's going to be an off speed pitch. Or if they look to the right, the catcher setting up inside. They look to the left, the catcher setting up away. So all these things are information that 
hey, hitting's hard. Hitting's really, really hard to do. So if I can decipher something that the pitcher is going to do to me and limit or be able to eliminate something and narrow it down to a pitch, I've got every right to do that because he's giving me information by his body language, by a tick, by something that he's doing. Um, and I think that's fair game. That is totally fair game. If you don't like it, change your signs or tighten up your mechanics that you're not giving it away. And that happens all the time. All of a sudden, I remember Randy Johnson all of a sudden one time went through a stretch. He was dominating everybody. Then all of a sudden he started getting raked. Randy Johnson started getting raked and Randy Johnson doesn't get raked ever. No. And they're all like, Oh my God, what's going on? Well, there was mechanical something he started doing. And, and a lot of guys obviously are subconscious. They don't realize they're doing it, but a lot of big league hitters are smart. They're looking for stuff like that all the time. And if you give them something, they're going to run with it and they're going to exploit it. And they're going to tell their teammates about it because they want to win baseball games. And, you know, the whistle thing and, you know, obviously anything that's man-made is out for me. That is cheating. That's, but if I can decipher something that I can pick up with my own eyes yeah. and tell a teammate about it, I'm going to do it. it. What's the difference of whistling or telling him, you know, right before, hey, if you were somehow able to discern this, hey, he's going to go to this pitch this time or whatever. It, you have to let them know somehow. And I just, this is my problem with it is I find it hard to I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this right now. If I'm in the box and I'm focused on trying to hit a 98 mile an hour fastball, it's really hard for me to listen for a whistle yeah. right before the pitch is coming. And then, oh, okay, now that's what's, it's, it's almost impossible to do. I have to know much further ahead of time than that to be able to, to process in my head what that means and if I'm going to swing or not. I, I totally agree. And the thing that I was going to say in regards to that is, I find it hard to believe that if the Mets were in that situation, you think Francisco Lindor at the plate is going to say, don't give me the pitches. Don't tell Absolutely me dugout, not. especially with the way he's been hitting. I mean, he hit three bombs that night. So, you know, you got to give him credit where credit's due, but I promise like he would have done the same thing. So that's where I always find it just, just so interesting where we have these, these rules or these circumstances where we decide, Hey, this isn't cool. I don't like this, but I'd probably do the same thing. And that's where baseball just gets a little bit lost, I think, in trying to figure out how it's going to police itself. I agree with what you're saying there. I fully think that anything that you're able to do on the field is, is fair game. And that's why you mix up the signs. That's why people cover their mouths at the mound when they're talking, even though I think it's a little bit like of just a, a knee-jerk reaction habit thing now. Uh, but that's why they do it, right? So it, it's a big part of just the game and the gamesmanship that comes with it that I think makes baseball so fun. It's like a chess match. And I think that all factors into it. Uh, one more thing on that, that I wanted to get to is the subway series. It's at first, I felt like it was a little bit dead that first night. And then it filled out a little bit and it was a good game, uh, early on. And then of course it turned into a blowout. So I didn't really get a fair look at that. That Sunday game was electric and Matt Vaskersian summed it up in a way I really liked. It was, he said, if this was a movie, people would give the director crap because the, people would say the crowd noise was unrealistic. It really sounded like a football game, just nonstop. And, and that kind of goes into, I think, the emotions played into it. And I think those things are stuff that fans, especially nowadays, feed off of. I know you're somebody that, and I totally understand this perspective too, is like, act like you've been there before. And, you know, don't, don't show up the other team too much and, and those things. And I do believe in a lot of that. But I also like what I saw on Sunday night in a lot of ways. I really did. I, I found myself very entertained and the crowd fed off of it. Where do you stand in terms of, of that side of things? Like Stanton stopping at shortstop. Like that, that would never happen in the 90s, right? Like, or would that ever happen? And if it did, I, is it he might, absolutely, it might. I've seen it happen before. Um, I've seen guys... Uh, I think it was Will Cordero, who used to be the shortstop for the um, Expos, might have stopped. We might have had a, I don't know, something happened, I think, at shortstop. And, and you know, it's an emotional game. Sports are emotional. Games are emotional, especially big ones like that and in that kind of electric atmosphere. And when you get into competition and you get somebody, you know, pushing your buttons by doing stupid things to your dugout, you want to put it back in their face. And Stanton 
Uh, I love that. I love that, uh, you know, he's, I don't know what he, I don't know what was said, but I know Lindor came back pretty sharp. If it wasn't Lindor, maybe started off uh, saying something first and Stan said, listen, bro, you can't talk to me like that. No. I just, I just put one 443, 443 feet uh, and it almost killed somebody in left center, but uh, literally, um, but that's, that's the gamesmanship. That's, I have no problem with that. That's, that's, uh, that's competition for me. I love it. You know, I, I don't, you know, you know me and I'm, I'm not going to ever going to be a big fan of the, the bat flips and the, <laughs> I'm going to stand there and watch it at a home plate. And then I'm going to pimp around the bases. Then that, that starts a, a different, I don't know if you saw that minor league uh, baseball uh, highlight where the guy um, pimped a home run so bad at home plate, he's going around second and the shortstop and him started jarring. Well, they got to a brawl before he even got to third base. So he didn't get the helmet, threw it at the shortstop and they went, they went after each other like crazy in triple a, I think it was. And so I think he cost himself a Homer. Yeah. It was a major brawl. Uh, I think that's just middle, a double middle of the uh, home run trot. So oh my gosh, stuff like that happens, you know, but um, yeah. For that, that reason, I, though, I, I like it better for that reason. Like, you know, Lindor's chirping a little bit and, and yeah. like, no, this is, I didn't put him in his place. I'm going to put in your, in your place where the other guy was like, he was got in trouble because he bat flipped it. Like you would not believe. Yeah. And no one did anything or uh, presumably. Right. So for you, did you ever have a moment where, where you were close to, to kind of just letting, letting the other team hear it or letting the other team have it? Cause I can't picture it, but I'm assuming in 17 years of major league baseball, there had to be one moment. There was a couple. Um, when that comes to mind, we were in Toronto and uh, starting pitcher. I hit a bomb off first at bat. And you know me, I definitely didn't pimp it. I didn't definitely didn't do any walk, ran the bases, got in the dugout. <clears throat> well, next time up, it's like fourth inning and fairly close game, man on second and two outs. And I come up to the plate. So first pitch to me is up and in. And I'm like, really? Is he really going to hit me? Because I hit a home run from the first at bat and there's a base open right now. And sure enough, he drilled me. <laughs> so, you know, um, Ed Rapuano was the uh, home plate umpire at the time. And I knew Ed pretty well. He played in golf tournaments together and things like that. And just one of the more uh, even keel umpires and, and cool guys you're going to find. And I, I looked at me and he looked at me right away. He goes, Jeff, he goes, don't do it don't do it. And it's probably the first and closest times I ever wanted to go out there and, and do something. He's like, he goes, don't do it. I'm like, Ed, I said, you know, that was on purpose. You have to know that was on purpose. He goes, Jeff, come on, man, D don't do it. Don't you regret it. And I'm like, all right. So I walked down to first base and then, um, and then nothing really happened the rest of the game. And I was approached after the game and said, Oh no, we're going to, we're going to take care of that when they come to our place. And I'm like, no, they're not. We're not going to take care of it because it should have been taken care of tonight. That I, next bat, it should have been taken care of right then. Three weeks from now, when they come to our place, it's lost its meaning. You hit somebody, they don't even know what it's for. You do it right now, protect one of your players, then it's done. It's over with and done. It kind of ties right back to what we were talking about with your big brawl stories. Look what happens when you let it kind of endure on. And, and the funniest thing, that the one I always think about is Hunter Strickland with Bryce Harper. And all Bryce Harper has done to Hunter Strickland is just hit bombs off of him. Uh, albeit he pimps the hell out of him. But Hunter Strickland harbored it for two years, two years, and drills him on the first pitch the, the next time. And that's where we had that infamous fight where Harper throws his helmet like the wrong direction. And it was ended up being a bad fight. Most of them end up being, you know, kind of just disastrous anyways. But like, I just couldn't even imagine caring about something like that for two years. Like I just, it, it blows my mind, but anyways, you mentioned umpires and we're going to talk about umpires in a second uh, because I read an old story that I stumbled upon uh, with the infamous Joe West, which I'm excited to talk about uh, and get your thoughts on some umpiring stuff in your career. Uh, but first I want to talk about the Jersey because I also have a conspiracy theory that we took last week off because I was on a two Jersey correct streak and you didn't want to see me make it three in a row, but it looks like a, I can only see the piping. I'm going to guess Texas Rangers angels. Okay. Well, we already did Mike Trout, so it can't be Mike Trout. And that's a, that's a modernish angels Jersey. That's a tough one. Can we give can we, I need, I need like a, a decade. A decade. I mean, it's when I played. So okay, 2000s, 2000s, 2000s angels. 
I'm going to go Josh Hamilton. No. <laughs> that was a reach. I just, I thought, I thought Josh Hamilton because of the Reds tie, maybe. I know you had the story where you talked to him before he played his first game. I don't know if there was something there. Um, Angels, man. This is a tough one. Tim Salmon. Nope. Good guess. Good player. Good guess. Good player. Yep. A couple good players. Second, the second best fish last name in, in uh, Angels history there. <laughs> um, mm, I got like one more guess in me before I throw the towel in. Can you give me a position? Outfield. Outfield. Okay. I, I'm throwing in the towel. What is it? Well, I was just looking over, you know, stats and everything before we started doing this uh, today. And I thought that the MVP race might come up again or <clears throat> whatever. And, um, and well, you know, this kid's having a pretty good year and, and his dad was a pretty good player. So, Oh, I knew it. Oh, I, how could I forget that? One of my all time favorite players right there, by the yep. way. And this was the first time in my life. Obviously I wasn't, I was, and it's Vlad, Vlad Guerrero Jr., obviously, for those who, who can't see or those who are listening on um, the podcast platform instead of YouTube, but you can also see the jersey on YouTube. Um, one of my favorite players ever, uh, I, I remember the where he really won me over was the home run derby, where he goes no batting gloves in the home run derby. His hands are like bleeding, and he's just teeing off. And just talk about bat-to-ball skills. Guy hit a ball that bounced. He did everything. But for me now, and I know I'm not old, but this was the first time where it's like, oh my gosh, one of my favorite players as a kid, son, is now tearing the league up. Uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr., tell me about your experience with him then. And I love that jersey. I might, I might, if that one's missing, you'll know where where it is. Now, this guy for me was uh, one of the most exciting players to watch uh, in all of baseball. I mean, he had every tool imaginable. He's, he could fly. He was huge. He hit bombs, he hit for average, had a cannon for an arm, uh, just reckless abandon almost. And just, uh, was just enjoyed the game. He just had a passion that just was fun to watch, you know? And, uh, I remember a particular series that we were out there in Anaheim might've been the series that I got this Jersey signed, but we're playing out there. And I think Rick Helling was pitching and, uh, it's a day game and Vlad, seniors up with bases loaded and it's just an epic at bat right so it's three and two and helling is just pounding him with fastballs 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 and he's keeps fouling them off fouling them off and over his head in the dirt doesn't matter this guy's fouling everything off and he threw him one of the nastiest curveballs i think i've ever seen it was just and helling had a great curveball it was a 12-6 curveball he threw it it was just on his shoe tops and it, it, he golfed he took like a two iron and golfed it out for a grand, grand slam. And it was just one of the greatest at bats I think I'd ever seen. I mean, this pitch was, it looked impossible to hit, but yet he puts barrel on it two inches off the ground and crushes it to left center for a grand slam. I was like, I just looked around to everybody and I'm like, did anybody else see that? And is an awe of that at, at bat and that pitch he just hit, it was ridiculous. I, I'm going to go dig up that at bat. That's going to be the first thing I do when, when this uh, episode is over, because to me, the juxtaposition of being this insanely aggressive hitter while also not striking out much. I mean, he had 737 walks, 985 strikeouts. Yep. He had a 380 career on base percentage, especially given that the way the game is today to be that aggressive and not strike out. I, I mean, I, I could imagine the guy could probably hit grains of rice. His, his hand-eye coordination must've been so good. Yeah, well, like you said, when you when you hit a bounced ball for a base hit, that's saying a little something. <clears throat> Not many people can do that, but um, yeah, we're just talking about Vlad Jr. Now we probably went over this I don't know three four weeks ago about uh, possible triple crown races, and we thought nah, he had fallen way behind the home run uh, race, and there was averages that were far above his because he had fallen way off. Well, look now, Vlad Greer Jr. is leading in home runs and average, and is like six RBIs behind uh the triple crown race right now which yeah in his second full season in the big leagues uh is insane to even be talking about this right now but you're talking about a uh, a generational talent that's going to be around for a long time and you know what he might even eclipse everything that his dad did in his illustrious career 
which is just absurd to even be able to say, right? I should be like, what are you talking about? When you say somebody's going to be better than what Vlad did, the odds are so slim. And the thing is, is they're very different in a lot of ways, right? Vlad played the outfield. He stole bags. He was very quick despite his size. Vlad Jr., uh, more of just a masher, right? Mostly a DH, not even a very good first baseman. And, you know, his job is to hit bombs, and that's exactly what he does. But when it comes to their swings, very similar. And Vlad Jr. as well, I mean, one of two guys to ever get an 80 grade on their hit tool. And you could say what you want about scouting, but the two guys that have gotten the 80 grade on their hit tool, Wander Franco, the switch hitter with the Rays, who's been unbelievable, started his career basically with like a 36 game on base streak, and then Vlad Guerrero Jr. And both those guys have, have, really been the alter uh, or the opposite of what we see in today's game um, with Vlad jr. People are starting to bring it back up now at what we talked about almost a month ago or more than a month ago, which is Vlad wins the triple crown. You're telling me he's still not winning the MVP. Mm-hmm. The part that makes it even crazier now though, is that Otani has not been good at the plate since really the all-star game. However, a lot of people are saying that that award was won in July. Like it it was over in July. I kind of understand that, but it's also a full season award. What Shohei's done is is never been done. And I I still think you got to go with Shohei. But at what point does this kind of get closer? Are we already there? I don't know. Can you do co-MVPs? Because that's what I'm saying. Obviously, you got Otani, who's doing something we've never seen in the history of the game, but you got a young kid that might do something that's only been accomplished like five or six times in the history of baseball. And never, never by a second year player, never by a second year player, not even close probably, but you're, I mean, you're talking about, he's going to make history if he wins a triple crown. I mean, that has to be rewarded some way. Something other than the triple crown has to be rewarded. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's a really, I mean, it's a beautiful problem, right? It's a beautiful problem for baseball where you're deciding whether the guy who broke the glass ceiling of what is feasible in baseball can win the MVP over a guy who is the son of somebody who set the bar so damn high and might even beat that. It's, it's a really great spot to be. Uh, So I'm, I'm excited to see the way that goes the rest of the way, but what's interesting to wrap this up though, with Otani uh, in the second half this year, he has not been nearly as good. I mean, and he set the bar really high for himself in that first half, obviously. I mean, there was no way he was going to replicate that. But in the second half, 219 batting average. He still has an 800 OPS because of the 11 home runs. But he had a 1,062 OPS in the first half. So he's definitely slowed down a little bit. I'm sure pitchers are figuring him out a little bit more, just where to pitch him. He's not a guy that's going to avoid striking out. He strikes out a good deal, but he does his damage still too. So it's a very interesting situation there with uh, how voters will go. But I I think the – Otani's going to end up, you know, taking that just because of how incredible what he's done is. So to wrap up here, the last topic I want to think about Otani too, and the whole home run derby jinx type thing. I was going to ask you about that, but I've always hated that narrative. I've always hated it. I've thought that the home run derby doesn't really, I've always thought that was kind of a cop out. What are your thoughts? I do too. But when you look at how many instances has happened to how many guys, I mean, it might be a real thing. It might be the Madden curse. No, no, just that you're like, look at uh, Bobby Abreu, what he did when he had that ridiculous home run derby. He was a stud the first half and he fell on his face the second half. Um, I think Josh Hamilton, after he had his monster home run derby uh, at Yankee Stadium, he fell way off. Otani's fallen way off. Um, And I think there's been other instances of that happening. I don't know. Maybe it's a coincidence. Uh, It could be. What I was asking is, have you heard of the Madden curse, like the video game? Oh, yes. <laughs> like sometimes it's almost, I feel like it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Where you just almost have this, this added pressure. I don't think any of these football players care, but there's something about it, right? This batting curse, it's pretty nuts. The history on that is, is pretty crazy. But baseball is also really a tale of two halves oftentimes too. So you wonder if it's just the league adjusting to you in the second half. There's a lot of different things, but I know that's going to be something that's definitely brought up in the off season is, you know, is, is the Derby in effect. And I really hope that that narrative doesn't continue to grow because I don't want the home run Derby to become like the dunk contest where I have no idea 
who the guys are in the dunk contest. I've never heard of any of them. And it's just baseball has the Derby and it has the stars in it. So I'm hoping that it stays that way, but it seems like that, that continues to be the case and the guys really take some pride in it uh, and playing in that. Uh, so the last thing I wanted to talk about here is umpires because I read this Tim Kirkchen piece, which was an old one, by the way, uh, but I stumbled upon it and uh, I was just baffled by these quotes. Uh, I just, I was watching a, a game that Joe West was umpiring and I just, it, it was bad. And I also just didn't like the way he was interacting with people. And I was like, what's the deal with this guy? So I was doing some digging and I just wanted to see if there were any stories on him. He's been around forever. I mean, he's the longest tenured umpire in baseball history. And Tim Kirkchen wrote this piece on him and it's MLB umpire. Joe West has never missed a call. Just ask him is what it's, is what it's called. And, and I can, I can, attest that he has missed many calls. He missed many on that one given night. This has an anonymous quote from a former player. It says, and I quote, if murder was legal, one former player says, some days I would kill Joe. I mean it. One day he's an arrogant, vindictive jerk, a guy who really believes that 50,000 people came to the park to see him, but he's a different person every time you see him. The next day he's joking with you on the field. He's charming and you want to go have a beer with him. I just thought that was the craziest quote I've ever read in my life. It's yes, I can see why that person said that. <clears throat> um, <laughs> Joe West was uh, quite an uh, enigmatic personality. That's for sure. Um, and it's true. I mean, some days, you know, he'll, he'll be adversarial. And, and um, if you question a call, all of a sudden it's you versus him and, you can't talk to him about it. It's his way. And that's all there was to it. Um, and then the next day, like I'm playing first base, he's like, Hey Jeff, what's going on? You know, and it's like, really? I mean, you, we hated each other yesterday, but I will give him that, you know, he it didn't seem to hold a grudge. He just kind of, uh, went on to the next day, turned the page and, and there you go. Um, but you know, there's obviously a, a problem with the evaluation system right now in, in baseball. And, they have no recourse for having bad games. Yeah, there's, there's really no accountability. There's no accountability. They have no. They, they don't get suspended. They don't get um, promoted. You know, here, you got to go down in the minor leagues and, and hone your skills like baseball players do. If I suck at playing baseball, I get demoted. I have to go back down to the minor leagues and, and prove that I belong back up in the big leagues. So, um, and there's a tons tons of umpires that even though they weren't the greatest umpires, you could have a discussion with them about their call. And there are a bunch of them like that. Like, Hey man, you know, I thought that ball was out and he goes, Jeff, no, I, I, I saw in the corner. I'm like, well, is that as far out as it gets? You know, I, that's what I always said when I questioned the call, I'm like, is that, is that as far as it goes, <laughs> is that as far as it goes, because I want to know the limits of work. I can expect it to be called a strike. And I didn't, I never would I never said that's bullshit. That's a foot outside. That's a ball. I just said, Hey, is that as far out as it goes? to kind of let them know I don't think that was a strike and I want them to tell me yes that's as far out as it's going to get um and then I could have a dialogue with some of those guys yeah like, no Jeff that's and I've even had a couple umpires tell me they missed it yeah hey that's all I care you tell me you miss it I get the argument's over there yeah. is no more argument we're all human I, here you're going to miss calls I agree I agree and that's the thing is I I, I try to put myself in, in those shoes and I, I would like to think that of course I'm going to be mad if a call is messed up especially if I'm in a slump or whatever it may be, but it's more aggravating. I think where you really see the players go from frustrated to fuming to ejection fuming level is where the umpires are, are dismissive or disrespectful. And then, and then you just see the player explode, which I would understand too. Cause if I just got screwed on a call and then you were an ass to me, I, that's really hard to, to keep those emotions in check. Uh, the one thing that I did find funny in the story though, and I don't know if you bonded over this with Joe West, he was a racquetball champion, according to the story. Um, I, I guess it was a very long time before we were talking about racquetball with Joe at some point, but cowboy, champion, they call him a, a loose term. Yes. Champion wear. It just says champion. And, and Tim Kirchin's a really good writer. Times over my career, I would come up and, and people would say, oh, my dad was, or my uncle was a, a national champ. And I'm like, what's his name? And this is when I was obviously big in the sport. And it's a very small, intimate sport, you know? So I knew all the best players. And they would say, oh, my dad was a national champion. I'm like, really? What was his name? Nah, no, he wasn't. 
he might have been national club champion at his one club that was in somewhere in Idaho or something like that. But um, yeah, I've heard that many, many times on many champions of racquetball. Yeah, I, that, that's one of those sports where it's like, where are you actually a champion? What's in what? In your local club, whatever it is. So Joe West, and I'm sure Joe West, from what it seems like, he's the kind of guy that will play that up a little bit. Uh, where he was a champion. He also got suspended in 2017 for calling Adrian Beltre the biggest complainer in the majors, which I didn't like because I love Adrian Beltre. He was one of my favorite players ever. Uh, just to, you, another guy who you could tell just had a blast on the field. That guy and was hilarious. Hilarious. I think Hall of Famer, by the way. His numbers are absurd. And his story, even more so, he had like, I don't know how many feet of intestines we have, but he had a lot of those feet gone before like early in his career spring training they weren't even sure how he was going to physically respond to that and he goes on and has this incredible career uh he was fun incredible defender played for a long time raked did everything uh those are the kind of guys that that i'm always going to give a little bit of a bump uh when it comes to the, to the hall of fame but with you any specific story with an umpire that sticks out uh that just kind of just ruminates in your mind still when i bring it up well, you know, it's, um, you know, back in the day, it was a, <clears throat> a very, veteran type rookie thing with umpires as well. So as a rookie player, I remember, uh, it was at pro player stadium and, uh, Paul Rungi was the, with the umpire's name, Brian Rungi is now obviously his son, uh, has been umpire in the major leagues. I think he's still umpiring to this day but he's been in there for a long time. But Paul Rungi was like one of the main umpires in the entire league and just a salty, salty veteran guy. And he let me know it right away when I stepped in there as a rookie. And there was a pitch that I thought was off the plate. And uh, I didn't look at him. I didn't confront him. I didn't, I just, I, I kind of went, oh God, I'm like, that's a ball. And all of a sudden he gets out of his crouch, comes over and starts dusting off the plate. And he's yelling at me. <laughs> God damn it, you fucking rookie. Don't you ever say anything about my fucking strike zone like that. Da, 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 da. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I was like, whoa. All right. So we got back behind the plate. Next pitch was like that much further outside. And he had this strike call that was long and drawn out. And I'm like, I'm like, really? This is how it's going to go? And then the next pitch, I don't know, it was like over my head or something. I just swung at it because I knew I'm probably getting punched out regardless. And, you know, that was, and, and later on, later on, Paul Rungy and I, we had a fine relationship. You know, it was, he would ask me about things, but that rookie season, I remember that. And I was like, holy crap, this guy is, he means business. And I, yeah. I didn't show him up. I didn't like turn to him and create a big stink. I just said, ah, man, I thought that was a ball. And he just let me have it. I'm like, oh, okay. Wow. So, yeah. So how much do you think these guys actually keep up with the, the game itself, like with what's going on in terms of you know, who's doing well, who's the rookie, who's not all of those things, like based on your experience, how much do you think these guys actually keep up with the game or do they just clock in and clock out? I don't know any, uh, as much anymore, but I knew back then they gave the nod to the veteran player for sure. If it was a questionable call, I think the veteran player would get it sometimes where rookie, sorry, you're getting called out on a ball, two, two balls off the plate where George Brett, he's not going to get called out on that pitch. I guarantee it. And I can't remember the umpires uh, that were involved in this or whatever, but I, I remember that um, George Brett was at the plate and um, something had happened earlier in the game with the catcher and the umpire. And when George came up to the plate, I think whomever it was turned around and they dusted off the plate and he looked at George, he goes, if you swing the bat, I will throw you out of the something like crazy. I'll throw you out of the game from now on. So he wanted to put it in their face. And this guy like would not call three balls right down the middle on George Brett because he was pissed at the catcher or whatever happened in that game. So he just watched George Brett watch him go and he gave him a, gave him a walk. He walked him on three pitches that were, or four pitches that were all strikes. <laughs> See, that's, that's where it gets scary. You just you don't know what's going on out there. And um, what's amazing now, too, is I, I, I see these umpire scorecards that they have. I don't know if you've seen this account on Twitter. It's, it's actually awesome. And they'll give a full scorecard on the umpire. And it'll say, based on the calls, which team benefited the most, 
uh, and, and basically holds them a little bit accountable. But at the end of the day, nobody, nothing happens of it other than a bunch of people just saying that guy stinks. Uh, but it is cool to kind of see that level of accountability uh, just in terms of just being able to see what, who did well and who didn't. Do you think that there's, that'll ever be something to wrap this up, ever be something that is discussed, like some sort of way to hold umpires to some sort of a standard? Uh, some of them take pride in it. I'd, I'd say most of them take pride in it, but there's definitely some that make it about themselves. Yeah, I think majority do take uh, a lot of pride in what they do, and they try to get better at it all the time. And I don't know if you remember that quest system that used to be in, in a lot of major league ballparks that yeah. was supposedly a, a umpire evaluation tool. Um, and yeah. of course, now we've got stuff that is far more accurate, and uh, they play it on ESPN every night with that strike box that you see Um played and but like you said I mean that's all well and good and if you get feedback from it and guys actually improve from it uh, and try to get better that's great but uh, if they're awful there's no recourse for it they're they don't fire an umpire for being awful at his job which well, you know, clearly not Angel which, Hernandez which doesn't doesn't really compute in the entire world of employment if you suck at nope. your job you're going to get fired if I get suck at my job at first base I'm going to get demoted I'm not going to be a major league player anymore so uh, it's interesting how that has worked over the years. And, you know, the, I know they've done uh, their studies and they've done their trial runs with uh, electronic umpiring uh, in the fall league um, a few years ago. I've I heard mixed things on that too. I hope it doesn't come to that. It's just, I, I like the human element of the game. I just wish it wasn't uh, so adversarial, um, you know, uh, in general. And uh, if, there's a way that these guys can be held accountable for doing a poor job, then I'm all in for that. Well, the crazy thing too, is you're not allowed to argue balls and strikes. You, the second you argue balls and strikes, you're tossed by a rule right. technically. Right. So that's where well, it that's, gets even that more. That takes away all the fun out. Come on. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I love it. I love seeing the, the, the players kind of go at it, especially when it's a bad call. Like you, you want to see some of that emotion. And I also love seeing the, the, the managers. What sticks with me is Aaron Boone, Aaron Boone going out there, and, and knowing he was going to get tossed, but just in defense of his players when it was, I think it was two years ago, uh, just basically saying you're screwing my players and he got tossed and it lit a fire under them. Like those are the things that, that, that I do like with it. Uh, but the last, last thing, I know I said last, but there's one more thing I wanted to ask you because we said we we're going to do wild card. So the wild card race, I think calling it a race is, is generous but I guess even if you pit turtles against each other and there's a finish line, that's technically a race too. And that's kind of what I would liken this to right now in the NL, uh, even in the AL too. It's not really that great over there either, but in the NL, just the playoff picture right now, Dodgers far and away have a 17 game lead on the first wild card spot. Second wild card spot is now held by the Cardinals who I haven't brought up. You haven't brought up. We have never mentioned them as a wild card threat. They're missing their ACE. Jack Flaherty, the real ace is Adam Wainwright. And you're telling me Adam Wainwright is going to pitch against Max Scherzer in a wild card game, potentially like Adam Wainwright, who's throwing for them. Like this, this whole thing is crazy. But before I get to that specific thing, the other teams that are in the hunt, Reds are a half game out. They've lost three straight. Padres are a game out. They've lost five straight. The Phillies are three games out. They've lost two straight and are three and 10 or three and seven in their last 10 and the Mets are four and six in their last 10 and have lost two straight. Everybody's hitting a wall at the same time. Somebody just has to tread water. And I think it's theirs. Yeah. <laughs> What's happening. It's you got some mediocre teams vying for that last spot that no one's taken a hold of it. So the Padres, we thought, when we talked about this a month ago, we thought that there was going to be Dodgers Padres run away with it. You know, it's going to be a one-game playoff between those two to see what the division is. And by the way, your Giants are holding on strong, man. The Giants. Uh, they're looking solid, more solid than I thought they would. I, they got staying power, which is great. Um, but like you said, Dodgers are a juggernaut. But the Padres, their collapse has been significant and uh, catastrophic. So, uh, man, it's uh, it's tough to say. I don't, I don't give them a chance really down the stretch. Wow. I think Cardinals, you've got that winning tradition there. Um, is Flaherty any chance of coming back before the end? There's of the season? A, yeah, he, there's a chance he'll be back. But do you trust that guy right away into the wild card game? That's that guy's a stud, though. I mean, he's a big time stud, big time mound presence. 
Uh, I would I would take Wainwright in the first game of a playoff game any day of the week. I mean, that guy has got playoff experience up the, you know what, and I'm giving him the ball all the time. I honestly think he would be a weird change of pace for the for the Dodgers. I, I think they would struggle against somebody like Wainwright. I think they'd be more used to the high VLO guy like Flaherty, and they see that and they hit that, and they, their offense is starting to click on all cylinders too. And uh, the Giants are doing their work by you know making them a uh, a subject to a one game playoff. You look at the AL picture too. Yankees they're three and seven in their last 10 Red Sox. They're four and six in their last 10. The Mariners are still in the picture, which blows my mind. They're only three games out. And what's really frustrating about it. And I, and I hate to pile on the poor kid, but Jared Kelnick, one of the top prospects in baseball, he's sitting 150, and he's, he, he's really just a gaping hole in their lineup, but they continue to deploy him out there every single day. And you, you have to wonder if they had somebody else in that position you know, where they'd be and, and if that would help them a little bit. But the Mariners are, are kind of towing the line of development and also competing for a spot. And I just don't think you can do that. Uh, the athletics, it's been interesting to see them slip. So it seems like it's kind of a three horse race here for two spots between the Blue Jays, the Yankees and the Red Sox, which is ironic because they're all in the same division. I've loved what I've seen from the Jays. Uh, the Yankees, I just can't really put a finger on it other than they have a lot of the same guys swing and miss. And the Red Sox just don't have the pitching. Uh, what are your thoughts over there? Who do you think ekes it out between uh, the, the, the two rivals? I think the Blue Jays are going to take for sure one of the two spots. And I think it's going to be between Red Sox and Yankees, which I would, I'm torn on that. I would love a Yankees Red Sox wild card, but I also think the Blue Jays are a lot of fun. Blue Jays are a lot of fun. I mean, that offense is ridiculous. Uh, it, <laughs> they got possibly three guys going to have a hundred RBIs this season with Bichette, Simeon, um, Simeon and, and Guerrero. Crazy. I mean, going crazy. So uh, high-powered offense. Uh, you got Boston, who has never really come together at all this entire year. They, they had a hot spot mid, mid-year, mid but uh, even with the addition of Sale back in there, who's pitched pretty well coming back, he's pitched very well. I thought that would have given them more of a spark down the stretch than it has uh, as a team. Uh, and then the Yankees, man, you just don't know. That offense could be so electric and so powerful and so blow your mind, but and it's then it can disappear. Luster. It's been yeah. lackluster it can and mediocre. Just... Like you said, they got a, a lot of the same dudes. And uh, when you don't have that speed dynamic in there or that slap uh, hit type guy, base runner type guys in that lineup, uh, when everybody's not slugging at the same time, it, it's an easy lineup to pitch to. It's funny you say that because I would argue that that Brett Gardner's been their savior right now. Like he's been the guy that's been keeping their offense alive, which is just hilarious because people were wanted him off the team. Uh, by the midseason mark, if the Padres continue the free fall, which we're all expecting, does that affect Tatis's MVP candidacy, in your opinion? I think so. I wow. think it has. Um, it really does, in my opinion, because not only has the team uh, underperformed and, and he hasn't had much of a second half and he's missed mm-hmm. 25 games. Mm-hmm. He's missed 25 games on the season. So. And he's playing right field now. And he's playing right field when it's not a great right field either. So which granted, I mean, he's a shortstop and they put him out in right field. What do we expect? Yeah, no, I, um, I think he's, but yeah, that is not an MVP caliber performance of a year for me this year is Tatis. Yes. He's an uh, electric talent. Uh, he wasn't that great at shortstop. Um, he's not doing that great at, uh, in right field. And if your team isn't making the playoffs and is free fallen in the last month of the season, I think that takes your name out of the MVP race. Well, it's going to be interesting to see it seems like everything is down the line here, right? The MVP race in the NL is going to be down to the last day. We won't really know until I think the vote's done. It's going to be one of those. The AL, I'm still leaning Otani, but the fact that we're having a conversation about it, we've already talked about it and said it's over. So the fact that it's like not 100% over is also really interesting. And then both wild cards, you basically have a three-way tie in both spots. It's going to be a fun finish here. And then we go into a postseason that's going to be a lot of fun as well. Uh, Great to be back with you here. Good to be able to talk again. I know you got a lot of free time on your hands now because you got to just quarantine, right? You got to just stay put. Until next Wednesday. So we got lots of time to do shows. Yeah, maybe we'll just do like 17 episodes over the next five (laughs) days and just make up for lost time. But uh, we'll get back after it soon. I'm a little bit nervous for you, but what we're going to do on the next episode, I probably should have asked you first, but now I'm already saying it and we're recording. We're going to do some questions. Uh We're going to let people ask you some questions. I will be the filter though. We'll filter out the bad questions. If there are any, they say there's no such thing as bad questions. There are, 
I'll filter those out, but I am excited to see some of the good questions that will be asked uh, of you and of your career and of baseball in general and your perspective on it. So we're going to answer some questions on the next episode. All right, that'll be fun. I look and, forward to that. Yeah, so you can fire them at me on Twitter at armlayton8. You can also fire them on Twitter at justbbmedia. Let us know your questions. You can DM, tweet us. I will make sure we keep them all and log them all down. And I'll also put a tweet out to just reply with any questions you may have as well. So keep an eye out for that on my personal Twitter. Looking forward to some of those questions. I might just throw in one bad question just in case too, to catch you off guard, but Thanks. that'll do it for today's episode. Uh, we'll get back to it very soon with the Q and a, any final thoughts, Jeff, before you are going to be put on the spot for the next episode. No, I'm looking forward to that. I like to know what people think, what they want to know about me and, and baseball and in general and, um, and this last two weeks is going to be very exciting. It's going to be a, a fun uh, finish to this season and, and a fun postseason. Absolutely. Well, we'll talk to you then.